Garland police officer is going to receive the National Medal of Valor for stopping two gunmen in a terrorist attack. As I saw the barrel of the rifle coming up, I immediately was ready to engage. I fired several rounds on him. He falls to the ground. He drops his rifle. I directed my attention to the driver. I fired a couple more rounds and I, had, I was carrying a Glock 21 45 caliber. They had about six, I think they had six guns and about 1,500 rounds of ammunition. Welcome back, listeners, watchers, viewers. It's Blue Grit Podcast. Tyler Owen, Clint McNear. Got a special guest on today. Let you introduce your uh, fellow colleague here. We have a freaking American hero. Um, I am super proud to call him a coworker, or was a coworker. We're both retired now. And a good friend, Greg Stevens. Pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for inviting me. Yep. So he's got a crazy story. Um, we talk a lot about leadership, and we talk a lot about what goes on uh, in the craziness of law enforcement. Uh, but one thing we talk about a lot is police every day is ordinary people doing extraordinary things, people doing uh, value, uh, extremely um, displays of valor in the face of danger. And it's ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and Greg defines uh, heroism when he's when he's got the stack the deck stacked against him. Well, yeah. that was a mouthful. I yeah, was. some bad words. <laughs> when he's got, I wasn't didn't mean to cuss you. That's okay. <laughs> um, I'm used to it. Let's start off. Tell us, tell us where you grew up. Tell us about. Tell us who Greg is. Well, um, actually, um, I was born in Canada. I was born in Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada, and uh, my both my parents were Canadian. I have a, uh, two older sisters, and, and uh, uh, we were all Canadian. And uh, when I was in the first grade, I think it was, uh, my dad had a business opportunity. We were living, actually living in Montreal in the province of Quebec at the time. Uh, my dad had a business opportunity that brought him to Austin, Texas, of all places. So talk about a culture change from, <laughs> from, yeah. from Montreal to Austin, Texas. And Austin back then— was probably it wasn't quite. I don't think it was a hundred thousand people yet. Oh wow! What year was it? This I think it was in nineteen sixty three, sixty two or three. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so uh, I grew up basically uh, right here in Austin, Texas, and uh, and when I was twenty one years old, I had to become a naturalized American citizen because I knew I wanted to be a policeman, and. Um, in order to do that, you have to be an American citizen. So, um, and I wanted to be an American citizen anyway. I, and this was home for me. I don't. I don't remember a whole lot about Canada, um, but uh, anyway. So I became naturalized, and a couple of years later, I I had I was going to school down at Texas State. It was called Southwest Texas State at the time, but after I left, they felt compelled to change the name. I'm not sure about that, but anyway, <laughs> not because uh, of you, but oh, I'm. I'm, I don't know. Um, but anyway, I had the opportunity to go to work at the police department there in Garland. And, um, and that was in May of 1978 that I started there about six days after my 23rd birthday. So I was just a baby and, and I stayed there until I retired in, uh, the last day of August, 2018. So I had, uh, 40 years, three months and nine days on the wow. job before I, I walked away. I did all of it in a uniform. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I had opportunities to promote if I had been inclined to, and and I and I actually studied and, and almost did once, and that's when it the reality hit me. Man, what was I thinking? I almost screwed up and got promoted. I did. I was fixing to give up my weekends off, my my take home vehicle as a motor officer at the time, and and uh, I was like, man, what were you thinking there? And my son was about eleven or twelve years old. I heck, I'd never get to see him again. Probably be working evening shift with Thursday and Friday off or Wednesday and Thursday off. So, so um, did you know in college down in San Marcos, did you did you have a feeling you were wanting to be police or how'd that happen? Actually, before that, um, I always had, a, as a kid, I had an interest and thought it was kind of an interesting, I mean, I didn't really, as a young boy, I didn't really understand the magnitude of that or anything about yeah. that, you know. Um but I, I was always kind of mesmerized by, by the police, right? Anybody and in your family law enforcement that no, caused that to develop? No, I'm, I'm the beginning of that. Um, maybe the ending of that, too. Couldn't think of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, but as I got older and I was in high school, um, actually, I think my, sister, my oldest sister dated a guy that was a policeman here in Austin for a, for a short while. She's nine years older than me, so she's quite a bit older than me. And, uh, but anyway... Um, I just had an interest, and, and I started, I decided I'd gone to school, and I left school because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Once I decided what I, that I was going to pursue law enforcement, I went back to school, did rather well um, because I, had, I was focused, had, knew what I was wanting to do, and uh, rode out with Austin PD a couple of times, and, man, I was hooked. Very first time I rode out, um, we hadn't been in the car 15 minutes, and we're working East Austin, and we're going down, I don't know what street it was, but... There was a kind of industrial area over to the right and a whole line of trucks sitting over there. And there was a guy, it's the middle of the night, there's a guy with the hood of a truck open, blown in there. And I told the guys right when I said, hey, I don't think that guy should be in that truck. And he looks over there and went over there and we, we caught us a guy burglarizing those trucks, stealing the batteries out of him. So I was hooked. I was, you know, 15 minutes in, I, and that I was just a on, bad guy. And that was just on a ride along. Yeah. You know, that was, and so many times, and I was guilty of it, and I'm sure you guys were too, but where you get the notification of, you got a rider or not? And there's that, oh, because we're, you know, we love riding one man or one woman vehicles. Sure. But man, our profession is the recruitment and the retention and, and people wanting to get into this line of work. It's dwindling daily, if not hourly. And so I, with, with, I guess to expand upon that is that if any listeners out there that, that have the opportunity to have a ride along, man, take it serious and embrace it. And, uh, you know, you could have so much impact on somebody's life and, and and have a future Greg Stevens or a Clint McNair or God forbid a Tyler Owen, but you know that's that's their opportunity that that you could uh, you know you could jump on. So I just want to jump on that real quick. Cause somebody this this past week was complaining about having a rider, and I said, man, come on, dude. So anyway, well, you know the interesting thing about that too is he and I immediately developed a relationship, and I haven't heard from him in thirty forty years now, but um, but that developed a bond there automatically almost, and so. You know, after after that night of riding, he he was like, anytime you want to come ride, you just call me and we'll make it happen. Because they had a rider policy where you couldn't ride, you know, every night. But um, but I, I it, you know, that was kind of the first, that was when they set the hook. And yeah. uh, and I got reeled in and and I really wanted it bad. And, and, uh, and Randy Bailey who Clint knows, who we worked together with. He was the president of the student, the Law Enforcement Students Association down there that year, and I didn't know Randy. Um, 
but uh, he he set up a career day thing, and I decided to go to this career day. And there's a whole room full of police officers, and you know, from all over the state and other states even. And the two sharpest guys in the room were from Garland, Texas. And there were so lots of sh- there's a lot of sharp guys in the room. Don't misunderstand me, yeah. but it was it was prominent to me. And I went and talked to him, and um, and after I talked to him, I didn't know anything much about Garland other than the pastor of the church that I attended left our church, Crestview Baptist Church here in Austin, and went to pastor a church in Garland, Texas. That was the only thing I knew about Garland. And uh, so I went and talked to the uh, head of the law enforcement um, department, the criminal justice department there at Texas State, and I said, hey, do you know anything about this agency? And, and he said, yeah. He said, they're not only recognized in the state as being one of the better agencies and recognized as progressive and and but he said they're even recognized nationally that way too, and they're just on the brink of a real big growth spurt. And he said, if you have opportunity to go to work there, I would recommend that you yeah. consider it very seriously. So I had applied to Austin PD. I'd applied to um, um, oh, I was looking at DPS. I was looking at a lot of different things, um, and uh, ultimately because of a number of circumstances, and I'm not going to go into all that because we're going to waste our time on that. But ultimately, Garland was the only agency I ended up officially applying to and going through the hiring process, and I was hired by them. That's cool. So 40 years at Garland, you almost kind of had it figured out how to do police work. (laughs) 28 on motors, is that right? 28 of it on motors? About 28 on motors. That was the best 28 years anybody could ever have ever. So I'm the minority here. He was a motor officer, and John behind the Well, behind you the know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Yep, was I a did. motor officer. I'm in the minority so, on this. Well, i got to ask you this, though. How many times in the winter, when it's cold, you got your leather jacket on, you got your tall boots on, got it all shined up, your motorcycle's really clean. How many times do you ride in front of the windows at that shopping center and look over and look how cool you look going down the history, there? history, yeah, the history <laughs> behind a motor officer, you do deal, you, I mean, you just have a sense of, a different sense of pride, especially just in the whole, the whole uniform presence and, and being that, that motor crop. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. Until you turn too sharp, you dump your bike right there in the middle of the highway, and those are, most, you know, the, most, those are the most embarrassing moments. Or, but, Y'all sleep yeah. in your boots? No, no. We uh, we wake up. We have to kind of do a ritual in front of them. We salute them. We put them on, and we can't talk about that. That's something yeah. that only okay. motor officers know. You're getting into kind of motor officer only territory. area there. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if that was chaps in the tall boots. Was just was yeah. that all, or just a yeah. requirement, or yeah, no. So, an amazing career. Forty years. Twenty eight on motors. Let's talk about May 3rd, 2015. Here we are at the Curtis Colwell Center. It is Friday, the day before the Saturday Standing with the Prophet event. And uh, we're being uh, told to uh, leave the area. So we will continue this tomorrow for the uh, event itself, Standing with the Prophet, as well as uh, some coverage of the protest of the event led by AFDI and Pamela Geller. Uh, this is Damon Rosen reporting for the United West from Garland, Texas, outside the Curtis Colwell Center. Um, that was a day. That was a day. Um, 
for the listeners, there's a large event center in Garland called the Curtis Colwell uh, Event Center. It's kind of a convention center, conference yeah. center. It's up on 190 George Bush Freeway. Um, May 3rd that day, there was an event there called Draw the Prophet, um, where it was intended, the spirit, my understanding, the spirit of it was, was intended to be people to have artistic freedom to express their artistic ability to draw the Prophet Muhammad, which in the Arab world is an extreme no, uh, no, no, no. Yeah, it's, it's, it's blasphemy, blasphemy in, in the Islamic it's, faith. Yeah, and this was this the promoter out of New York that put this thing on. Pamela Geller. Her idea behind all this was um, to to kind of point out to the um, Islamic terrorists or the the radical Islamics that hey, we're not going to kowtow to your intimidation. You know the the Hebdo attack uh, in France and and another attack in the Netherlands and so on. Another cartoon artist. She felt like that freedom of speech globally was being attacked here, and this was her effort to try and say, hey, we believe in free speech, and if we want to draw depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, we're going to do that, whether you like it or not. Now, whether that's a good thing or not is. I'm not sure that that was a good way to go sure. about it, but that, that I think that was the the idea behind the whole the event. The spirit was, this is American. You're not going to tell us what to do. We're going to do it. And you brought up a good point for historical context to listeners. This was 2015. January 7th, 2015, Charlie Hebdo, who was a satirical cartoonist in France, um, terrorist had told him to quit making satirical depictions or cartoons uh, related to terrorism and their beliefs. Um, on January 7th, 2015, there was an attack, 12 murdered and 11 injured. The following month, February the 14th, 2015, in Copenhagen, Denmark, there was a event much like the one in Garland called Art Blasphemy in the Freedom of Expression. In Copenhagen, Denmark, there was... Two killed and five police officers wounded during that attack. Oh, wow. The the event we're talking about today is just a couple of months later on May the 3rd, 2015. Right. You know, in the Hebdo attack, we watched that on TV. People probably remember these guys were in body, you know, in black BDU-type uniforms and with body armor, with rifles, and they just went willy-nilly just kind of shooting people as they came to them and killed a French policeman in the process. That's the um, one that they aired on TV for a couple of days where the guy's running across the street, trips over the curb, yeah, falls think, on the yeah. sidewalk, and they run up and pretty yeah. much execute him. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and you got to remember in 2015, this is when ISIS was at its pinnacle. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they, had, they had taken a lot of land in the Middle East. They were very strong, and their recruitment efforts in the United States were amazing. Yeah. It, that's baffling to me, but it, it was amazing yeah. and led to um, a lot of especially young Americans, impressionable Americans, um, kind of falling by the wayside and, and kind of going along with, that, with this very radical ideology. Yeah, they were, um, they were becoming pretty efficient at radicalizing and weaponizing young minds at that, at that point to quickly radicalize them. Because oftentimes when you think someone changes their faith or their denomination, it happens over a period of years or relationships and they slowly change their beliefs. And at that time 
they were radicalizing some young minds, impressionable minds, or misfits looking for a cause, I mean, in a matter of weeks and months, and then weaponizing those people to action. Yeah, it, that's amazing to me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm surprised and, and kind of, uh, I'm just, like I said, I'm just kind of amazed at the ability people have to, yeah. to do that. The and, power and, of the and, for, yeah. and for people to succumb to that. Yeah. So on that day, the event was going to take place at the convention center. Garland had assets there on station, um, internal, external. I used to know the numbers when I was teaching about this quite a bit. About 300 civilians, or was it folks? I don't remember. The no, it's, it wasn't. It wasn't even three hundred. It was probably more in the probably two hundred and fifty or less. Okay, but you know, we it's it's an it to get put it into context, and for law enforcement people, they'll understand this especially. You know, you have an event that needs police security, and it's got two hundred and fifty people there. How many officers are you going to hire for that? Two. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. You know, with no alcohol. Yeah, and and if if they're drinking, maybe four at the most. Yeah. Depends on what they're drinking and who they are. Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, the rea- we had for the city of Garland, not just the police department, but the police department, the fire department, and and uh, and the school district, who has their own security force. Um, we had probably seventy or more officers assigned to this event. Um, so that right ratio of 70 officers for 225 250 people is just insane so it was obvious this was not your typical security event and and not without a great deal of concern yeah yeah in in having two people for a wedding of 200 people i'm sure the history of the two recent terrorist attacks at a similar event probably was a the, the determining factor in all of that. So let's talk about we had internal assets, external assets. Tell us about what was your role that day. What would you would you think you were headed to do that day? Well, I'll tell you the story about how I ended up there. It's really almost comical. Um, <clears throat> I worked a lot of overtime in my career, as do lots of guys. Right. Um, my situation at home was. Um, my wife and I married later in life. We had a child. She wanted to stay home and be mom. I wanted her to be home and be mom. I loved that idea. Uh, we were kind of used to two incomes. We kind of cut it in half, and then somebody had to make up slack. So basically, we were a two-income family. We just only had one guy working, and so that's how that worked out. And and we sat down. I drew. I wrote it all down on paper, and I showed her. I said, look, this is what it is. I can make this work. I said, it may not always be pretty, but I can make this work if this is what we really want to do. And, and as a couple, um, we thought about it, we prayed about it, and we decided that's what we wanted to do. And I'm, there's not a moment regret here for it. But uh, anyway, so I, I had a lot of overtime available to me in the traffic unit. We were, especially on motors. Um, I wasn't on motors at the time, but, but throughout my whole career in traffic, um, which was the last 33 just about years of my career. So I spent a lot of time in there. And uh, I had a lot of overtime available, so I didn't, I didn't go into the squad room, the patrol squad room, and sign up for stuff very often just because there's a lot more of those guys. I, you know, I didn't want to take their overtime. They didn't have near as much available as I did, and I was never really hurting for it. But I'd walk through the squad room. I, I, I liked to look and see what was going on up there. But So I had gone through there, and there was this – draw the profit event and there was one spot open on it and i'd been in there i bet you i'd been in there three or four times over the course of two or three weeks and this one spot 
Kept staring at you. Was always open. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's Sunday. And it's like, you know, from, you know, one to six or, or one to seven or something like that or, or whatever it was, or two to seven. I, I, I forget what time it was. I think it was two to seven. So I'm looking at that thinking, man, What could go wrong? <laughs> there's, five, there, there's five hours of easy overtime, yeah. right? So I thought, if nobody else is going to take it, I'll, I'll kill a Sunday afternoon for literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I, I signed up. And I didn't, I had no idea what the draw the profit thing was about. And oh, I, when you signed up, you had no clue? No clue. No clue. I thought I was going to direct traffic at the Colwell Center, you know, and, you know, I'd work graduations there, all that stuff. It's easy peasy, really. I mean, you just kind of endure directing traffic, but other than that, it, it was no big deal. So, I, I, I here I was. I signed up for five hours of easy overtime, and a few days later, I get a text. Now I'm the team leader for our SWAT negotiators at the time, right? So I get a text, a SWAT text that says, "Hey, we have a briefing at so and so time in the Ashlock room, which is a meeting room at the police department." So I go to that, and it's about this draw the profit thing, and I'm I have no idea what it is. Finally, after a few minutes, I have to poke the guy next to me and say. What the heck are they talking about? I have no idea what's going on. And then he, then I get somebody starts explaining it to me, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's a reason there wasn't a name on there. I don't <laughs> know. So anyway, that's how I ended up there thinking. And then we had a briefing after that. That first briefing was just for SWAT team members, and the second one was actually for everybody that was going to be working the event. And we had people from Homeland Security, ATF, um, FBI, uh, everybody that we even had the security people for the for the dignitaries that were going to be there, everybody that was going to be there, we wanted in this briefing so we could all put eyes on each because a lot of everybody was going to be in a uniform. So we wanted to be able to put eyes on each other and know if that's a good guy or a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, that's how I ended so up. So what there. was your role that day? So I, I was assigned um, to the west entrance, and I had a pretty simple assignment. Um, uh, the guy that put this thing together – and you know him, so I, I can tell this. He's a lieutenant, and his name is Dan. Lieutenant Dan. So you know where that's going, right? But he's a good guy, smart, smart guy. I have nothing but respect for him. West Point grad? Yes. just He's just off the charts good guy and good people and, and smart. Shout out Dino. Yeah. So – Anyway, and he and I have worked together on SWAT, and uh, so he comes to me and he says, man, I got, I got a good deal for you. He said, this is easy. He said, I got you at the west entrance, simple job. Dignitaries are going to come in there. Dignitaries are going to leave out there, and there's a caterer going to come through there. Nobody else comes or goes out of there. Don't let anybody in the parking lot. Boom. There Those are simple instructions for a motor cop, yes, right? Yes, sir. I can, you know. Yeah. That's Marine Corps-like stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it drawn in crayons? Um, not yet. <laughs> But anyway, uh, so I said, cool. I said, that's great. So I go to my assignment, and they gave me uh, one of the um, uh, unarmed security guards for the school district joined me there. And uh, and if, I guess nothing else keep me awake. I don't know. But anyway, I, I, I was w- working my post. And interestingly enough, if you looked at the rest of the event, every officer that was there was rifle trained. Whether they were in a uniform or complete SWAT kit, they had their rifles deployed, 
And uh, there were multiple officers at every entrance and every other part of that event, except the west entrance, where there was me and my security guard buddy. Who's unarmed. Who's unarmed. Yeah. He's in a kind of a uniform, but he's not, he's, he doesn't have a, an, any kind of weapon with him. So, uh, like I said, my job was just to have the promoter and her security crew come through. And I had the, the, the entrance blocked off with tall, like four-foot cones. And I just left about a 10-foot opening where we'd get a car in and car out. And I stood kind of in that opening for the bulk of the day. And, uh, and they came and went um, as they should have. And all seemed to be pretty easy to get along with it at the time. And for context, you were on... If the building had a perimeter immediately around it, you were on kind of an outer outer perimeter. Yes. Yeah, it was – the west entrance was the, the first – if you came down Naaman Forest Boulevard from North Garland Avenue, it was the first entrance you'd come to, and then you'd continue on, and then the rest of the entrances and so on to the facility would be on your right-hand side past where I was. So I was I was on the outer edges. Uh May in Texas, it was already pretty hot. wasn't horrible, but it was. Well, yeah, you're talking about motor, you're talking about motor cops, yeah. yeah. For motor officers, yeah. it was below 120. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. um, the event throughout went pretty well. You had just left motors, so you had a brand new police car. Was that right? Well, I'd been off motors a little over a year. The first car I, they were the the department and. I'm so appreciative of this, and I I have nothing but good things to say about uh, the Garland Police Department. I never, I was I was well treated and taken care of throughout the entirety of my career. I never, I, you won't hear me say anything bad uh, or was it perfect? No, it's not perfect. None of it, no, none of it's perfect. But but I really was well taken care of, and at the toward the end of my career, when it was time for me to get off motors, and I knew when it was time. Um, they let me use a car that wasn't being utilized at the moment and didn't take me off of my motor yet and let me kind of transition because they knew how I really didn't want to have to do it. But my body was telling me, hey, 28 years of this and you're getting a little older now. And and what was the killer for me was winter. I couldn't stay warm in the wintertime. Heat never bothered me. Um, I could go out and work in the do it right now if I wanted to in the heat, but I, I, I struggle to stay warm. And, and I would get home from work in the wintertime just exhausted because my body was working so hard trying to stay warm. But they allowed me to transition, and I had a car to use for a while, and then ultimately I did get that brand-new car. It was a brand-new Caprice. That was the nicest police car. And you had gotten it not long before this event? I got it in March. Okay. <laughs> there's there's we'll a story here. That. We'll come yeah. back to that in a minute. Yeah. So March, you get a brand new car. May third, you're out working. The day went pretty smooth. It was kind of warm. It was uh, good though. I mean, I, 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 um, I didn't have to spend time in my car. I didn't. I didn't feel compelled to do that. Um, I had some water in the car in case somebody got thirsty. I'd go get a drink of water. That's and, a great point for you, for young officers out there. At that point, you did forty years. You stayed on about three years after this event. Three or four years. At that point, you've got 36, 37 years on. You told me in the truck that night why you didn't sit in the AC all day. You yeah. remember? Yeah, well, that, that wasn't my job. My job was to make sure that 
I was doing my job, and I can't do my job sitting in a car. You said you felt something compelled you. You needed to be seen. You needed to be outside. You needed to be visible and mobile instead of sitting in the AC because I'm fat and I would have been sitting in the AC for five hours. <laughs> I don't, I don't know about that, but, um, but you told me that night sitting in the, in the mobile command facility, I felt compelled to sit in that car. I mean, to not sit in that car and to stand out there. Well, here's the thing. And it may or may not have been that night. And I don't, I don't remember that conversation. Um, unfortunately, but, um, needless to say, I've slept since then, but, Anyhow, it's always been my belief that it, on these security assignments, these extra job assignments, um, if you're expected to be at a post and seen and available, and, and I can't, you know, I'm not comfortable sitting in a car because I can't see, I can see out in front of me. I can't see beside me good. I certainly can't see behind me where the hoot. And uh, it's just uncomfortable for me. Yeah. So I like, I, you know, I think it's important and for the younger guys out there, if you're doing one of those assignments, don't be stuck in your car. I've, I've watched these kids, and I call them kids because they look like they're about 14 now to me. But anyway, it's, it's kind of funny to me. You watch these guys. Everything has become so technological in police work. They have computers that they're working on. Everything has to be done on a computer. They're on their phones because they, that's how a lot of times there's communication going on there. And, 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 and they got the air conditioner going and they got, you know, all those things. And I almost feel compelled to go over and knock on the window and say, listen, see this button right here. If you push that button, the window will come down automatically. You know, it's like they don't even know. They wouldn't have a clue what a crank window was, but, (laughs) but, um, but it's just kind of amazing to me. Um, Policing is done in a bubble anymore and i was just the complete opposite of that i needed to be out because i i want to hear things i I worked with young officers i've worked a lot of overtime on late nights and a lot of young guys out there and and i used to tell them hey you want to hear what's going on in your beat about two o'clock in the morning shut your car off um and either roll the windows down or get out of your car with the motor shut off and just stand there and listen a minute Yep. You'd be amazed what you hear going on yeah, the in the middle smells, of the night. Cigarette smoke, two o'clock in the morning yeah. in the residential neighborhood. You know what's up. I mean, yeah. it, you know, there's all kinds of things. Yep. Kind of some lost art yeah. um, in policing, in my opinion. Well, yep. a 36 year veteran who chooses to sit in the Texas heat, stand out in the Texas heat rather than sit in his car with AC running, I think that's cool. That stuck with me. And there's some more things you said that night we're going to talk about that you <laughs> may or may not Uh-oh. remember. But <laughs> So the day goes smooth. You're out there about five hours. Uh, uh, radio comes out on, um, event is indexed. Well, they, uh, <clears throat> I'm standing there and, and, uh, actually I'd gotten one of the SWAT guys. We had a two, two man cars with two kitted out SWAT guys, unmarked cars that were roaming around on both sides of the deal. And I had one of them relieve me. I had to run up the building, use the bathroom. And, uh, and I got back and got re situated in my spot and i'm standing there and i heard the radio crackles and i hear somebody say well looks like it just ended and i thought to myself this was a lot of ado about nothing at this point we had no protesters which was kind of weird either also because we had had an event prior to that um that kind of created some ire in the city and without going into a lot of detail but we had protesters protesters at that and and it was 
you could see the tension in the air. And I, yeah. This thing, not a single protester. It was, it was just kind of, I thought that was a little unusual too. But anyway, it said, they said, well, it looks like it just ended. And I'm thinking, well, good. Well, this was a lot of. Get my check and go to the house. Yeah, I'm ready to go. So tell us, tell us what happened. Tell us, tell us what you see next. See here. Okay, so I'm standing there and I'm facing the street, and I and the the driveway has some elevation to it. There's an approach that goes up, and uh, it's about a forty foot driveway, and I've got ten foot cones on top of that approach there, kind of blocking the driveway with about a ten foot opening. I'm standing on the uh, if you're standing in the parking lot looking at the street i'm standing on the left side of the driveway and uh like i said been there most of the day and this little black car comes up and pulls partially into the driveway and uh and stays partially left to right yeah coming from my left to my right going down the street and uh partially in the driveway partially still in the street and pulls to the all the way to the other side of the driveway and comes to a stop kind of abruptly. And I thought, that's weird. And uh, Can't see inside the car? No, I can't. I can't see anything. And it's not dark. It's just I just can't see in the car. And uh, it's a little two-door car. So they pull up. So I'm watching this car. And here's a little, an interesting tidbit. The, the security guard that was with me, he's seeing the exact same thing, Right. And he was behind me and to my left. I, he never came into my field of view, so and, and he told me this, and he actually testified to this in a subsequent trial. But anyway, he, had, he told me, he said he saw the same thing that I was seeing, and he just assumed it was somebody going to ask directions or ask a question or something like that. Um, I had a different perspective on it because if they wanted to ask this guy a question, they needed to stop where I was, not 30 feet away. Because the chances of me ambling over there 30 feet, they're going to have to back up. They're going to have to do something. You know, I'm, I'm not really inclined to leave where I was at in order just to see if they had a question or something. But the security guard says he's walking toward the car. So here's a difference in perspective already, right? The next thing that happens is both doors of the car open simultaneously, and I can see the passenger side clearly. I can see the back clearly. can't see the driver's side as much because it's blocked a little bit by the car. But I can see both doors open at the same time. And the next thing I see is the passenger stepping out in the barrel of a rifle coming up in my direction. So the security guard is seeing exactly the same thing. Okay? Now, once again, here we are on perspective, right? He said, and he told me this personally and, and testified to it, he said when he saw that, his first thought was, this is the stupidest prank anybody could ever pull because that Garland policeman is going to kill that guy. Wow. Well, interestingly enough, now we're kind of on the same page, right? Yep. We, we took two different roads and finally got the same intersection. But the, the, the point being here is preparation isn't just – learning how to shoot a gun, learning how to, you know, exchange um, in a physical altercation uh, or any of that kind of stuff. A lot of it has to do with this right here. It's mindset. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't prepared for something that dramatic or difficult to happen. Um, his brain immediately went to, this can't really be happening. This has got to be a prank. My brain wasn't there. As soon as I saw the barrel of the rifle coming up, 
I immediately was ready to engage. And and when I was asked in in a trial subsequent to this, uh, the one of the attorneys said, "Well, when you when you saw the barrel of the rifle coming up in your direction, what happened next?" Well, my answer to that, and I, and it's on the record, and my, I said my training kicked in because that's exactly what happened. I didn't. I wasn't making a plan. I wasn't going. Oh, wait a minute. What do I need to do now? Right. I knew that it, it was it was go time. I had to do something. Right. Do you so, even remember drawing your gun? Nope. Don't remember drawing my gun. The first actual memory I have is getting a sight picture and squeezing off around. And um, and on the passenger first. Yes. And people have asked me, well, um, who shot first? And I have no idea who shot first, whether it was me or him or we shot simultaneously or what happened. Wow. I do remember a sight picture. And interestingly enough, I do remember every round I fired, I got a sight picture. And I remember also that my rate of fire was not this spastic as fast as I could pull the trigger. It was rather rhythmical. And it took me a few days to remember that. It, it, it didn't – it's kind of interesting um, – you know, Colonel Grossman, I, everybody, probably most everybody who's listening here probably knows who Colonel Grossman is, but he had, his book on combat talks about things that happen when you're engaged in combat and what your body does and doesn't do and those kinds of things. And, uh, and, and one of the things that he talks about is memory delays or memory lapses and those kind of things. It's all normal. There's not anything to get worried about. But it took me a few days that I actually remembered that particular thing. And... Uh, and, and I had this very rhythmical, rather, rate of fire, and I got a sight picture. But, you know, when we, when we train at the range, it's all about hitting what you're shooting at. And that was as fast as Greg Stevens could shoot at something and hit what he was shooting at. Yep. If I did it any faster, I was just wasting bullets probably. Spraying yeah. and praying. Yeah. So passenger exit comes up with the rifle. You engage him. What's, I did. What, what, what happens during that engagement or what's the next – event that happens once y'all exchange gunfire um well i fired several rounds on him he falls to the ground he drops his rifle um i knew i had two assailants so i felt he was at least temporarily out of the fight since he dropped his rifle and went down i directed my attention to the driver who had made his way out of the car and he was toward the at the back of the car he had his rifle shouldered and he was um, i'm and i never saw the security guard but i'm assuming that's who he was shooting at was was uh, the security guard who's headed for the Mexican border at this point because <laughs> he has no cover, no nothing. He's just out of luck, right? And uh, and so I, I engaged the uh, the driver, fired several rounds on him. He falls to the ground similarly to the to the passenger, drops his rifle. I still had concerns about the passenger, so I, I, I readdressed my attention to him. He's laying on the ground. And he's moving around. He hasn't retrieved his rifle, but he's got his hands up here around his throat and around this area. And he's moving his hands around. And, and we had talked about in briefing, paying attention in a briefing, we talked about IEDs and the possibility and probability that if anybody mounted any kind of attack, they would have small weapons, you know, uh, handguns and rifles, and uh, very likely IEDs of some sort, whether body-borne or 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 vehicle born. So I'm thinking while he's doing this, is he trying to pull a pin? Is he trying to push a button? I don't know what he's doing. So he is still a very much a threat in my mind. So I re-engaged him 
and uh, fired several more rounds. He quit wiggling around quite so much. And, uh, and then I, I once again directed my attention toward the driver. He hadn't done a whole lot. Um, he had kind of pushed himself up and slumped back down. He hadn't retrieved his rifle, but once again, the IED thing is I had to make sure that threat was completely eliminated. I fired a couple more rounds, and I, had, I was carrying a Glock 21 45 caliber handgun at the time, and I slide locked back. I'd fired 14 rounds, and uh, I immediately did a tactical reload. It wasn't something I thought about, and, man, I was reloaded in a hurry. Um, I, I, that's one of the things I'm, I'm kind of excited about when I tell this story is how that training really gets ingrained because, you know, weapon up, eyes down range, drop my mag, retrieve another one, insert my mag, recharge my weapon, got another sight picture, check the other guy, you know, and then by this time help had arrived and they're screaming at me trying to get me to point of cover because I'm standing in no man's land, but I'm kind of in a whole nother zone at this point. I'm, my focus is very much right in front of me, and it took him a while to get my attention. But so you had a Glock twenty one forty five caliber. Yeah, they were shooting AK style. AK. The, they were AK forty sevens with uh, seven six two by thirty nines, I guess. In it. And it was hundred round drums, wasn't it? One of them had a hundred round drum. They had about actually they had uh, investigation would later reveal they had about six i think they had six guns and about 1500 rounds of ammunition wow they were there to party yeah they shooting old cop wasn't what they were there for well and they thought they were there for a massacre till they met a 60 year old garland cop <laughs> with a glock well uh, it's, it's interesting people ask me you know um why and why if they have if i have any idea why they picked that spot and uh, and I don't have any real um, – I can't point to evidence of this or any documentation per se, but these two guys were from Phoenix, right? So if coming from my left to my right, from Garland Road down Naaman Forest, I find it probably unlikely that the first driveway they came to, they're just going to mount this attack after driving from Phoenix, right? I think they – I think they uh, surveyed this place. They reconned the area, and they saw me and and the security guard there went down, see guys. All of them got rifles deployed. There's multiple officers. There's guys in cars. There's all kinds of things going on everywhere else. But heaven forbid, this one place, there's just two guys there. Only one of them's armed, and he's 100 years old, how hard can this be, right? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it, right. from a tactical perspective, oh, yeah, absolutely. it probably was a pretty reasonable plan. Well, and I had seen documentation where they did a heat run prior. They had been down that road and turned around and gone back by. So well, I had never heard that. But they had done, at minimum, a drive-by of, a, at a minimum heat run just to yeah. have a view. Of and it. I don't remember seeing the car more than one, you know, but there was a lot of cars coming. Oh, going, yeah, so it's a busy road. It, and it was a nondescript little black car. Right. So you fired 14 rounds of 45. Do you know how many rounds they got off? Um, they had a little trouble because after the fact, the uh, the bomb unit kind of blew up the crime scene a lot. And there's reason for, for that. But they think they got off about 35 rounds between the two of them. Okay. You had no cover. Your car was back behind you some distance. And then I think off to your left was a really small live oak tree that – I wouldn't call much more than a sapling. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you were exposed. I required a much larger tree than that. <laughs> you were you were exposed. I mean, oh, absolutely. And here's the thing. When this attack occurred, like I said, my training kicked in. I did what I was trained to do. This wasn't me thinking, okay, I'm going to go all John Wayne on these guys. This was just me doing what I was trained to do. The only real conscious thought that I had when when this started to unfold was I need to become the aggressor in this battle because if I don't, I have no chance of survival. I have nowhere to go. I can't go to cover. I can't. Any of that would have been disastrous. So I need to become the aggressor in this battle to have any chance of surviving it. Yep. Not a great chance, but at least that's better than no chance. And uh, and that was kind of the mindset that that came across. And that is freaking amazing because that night we talked in the in the mobile command facility, and I, uh, you may not remember it, but. We were talking about it, and you realized while we were sitting in there waiting on the investigation and for the bomb units to blow up the car, and I was picking your brain, hey, man, what happened? And you said, you know, I was out in the open, and I said, did it ever occur to you to retreat behind your car? And you said, no, I was taking the fight to them. And, you know, in the Marine Corps years ago, they taught if you're ambushed, you turn and fight through it because that's that's not what anybody's going to expect. And a hasty ambush, you you immediately turn and fight the ambush and take them head on. And I think when you have two young, radicalized guys and you turn and take the fight to them with some aggression and immediate action, you've probably put them on their heels because clearly a guy with a handgun versus two guys with assault weapons with 100-round drum magazine and another one with however – that's probably not what they expected in their survey of the incident. And I asked you that night, you said, not only did I not back up, I was still closing the distance. And I said, were you really? And you said, I, w- I wasn't through killing those sons of bitches. And I don't remember that quote, but <laughs> we'll go with that. Well, <laughs> and, and, and be honest with you, um, after this happened, emotions are rampant. I mean, this was not. This isn't another day at the office for Greg Stevens. This is oh, fighting tooth terrorists on Texas soils. Probably not an everyday. Well, there, there's a couple things that stood out about you, your character that night. You got really emotional, wanting to know if your family was okay. Yeah. And I was joking around with you, trying to lighten it up, and I said, "You just killed two freaking terrorists." Texas is now two and zero. Texas, <laughs> you, you just killed two terrorists. You just won the Super Bowl, and. You were pre- you were very emotional, worried about your kids, uh, about your your son and your wife, and then all of a sudden you lit up and you got it really angry and you wanted to know did those son of a bitches shoot my brand new car? <laughs> and you were asking did they hit my car? I think they shot my brand new car, and that's how I learned you had a new uh, you had, and you said I get the department let me order it, they let me fix it the way I wanted it. I think they shot my damn car. <laughs> <laughs> I could I, now that seemed pretty reasonable. <laughs> yep, yep, that one stuck out to me. That was there is a story about the car beyond that, though. Oh, is there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and then later when the bomb unit came and blew up their car, you were worried about is there shrapnel? Did it hit my car? And I think it did. Didn't it? <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, it did. They blew up my car too. Uh, not too bad though. It. I mean, they fi- and they fixed it for me, and and all was good. But um, yeah, I was. Um, I was really proud of that car. That was like uh, 
That was like, like being, yes, it yeah. was, I was awarded that car. Yeah. I wasn't assigned that car. I was awarded that car, yeah. you know, and uh, I was so very appreciative to have what a, you know, that was my office on wheels and I spent a lot of time in that car, trust me. And, uh, and what a treat it was. And I was, I had gotten it just the way I want. I mean, it was just, just right. And for so, guys that work in law enforcement, your car is an important tool. It is. It is. It's an important Absolutely. tool. So this event happens on Sunday. Uh, and then the investigation, you know, kind of took some weeks, I would imagine, with the federal investigation on top of the state. And then your your you know department has your the uh, the critical incident. How soon did you start hearing uh, from the White House? Uh, I mean, kind of an instant fame. I mean, quite honestly. And uh, how how did that kind of process work? Well, initially, did you realize, and did you realize then what you had done? Yeah, no, not a clue. Um, I, Hey, it was just, I just did what I thought everybody would do. And, and probably I most people would. And I don't I'm not know. being disrespectful, but not to you by any means. But when you think of ISIS, everybody has a standard kind of, of what they think an ISIS fighter looks like. Right. Right. So when they, when, when they exited the car based off the briefing, based off the reports, was it obvious to you that, oh shit, I mean, here they are or what were they dressed like they were in France, tact- I mean, tactical pants, was it, I mean. Yeah, they were, I knew they were, I, I didn't think ISIS or, it was just two guys trying to kill me is what it was. Right. That's, I that's I why you didn't recognize it at the time. Right. And, but they were wearing dark clothing, like tactical type clothing. They both had soft body armor on and they both were wearing uh, load bearing vests with multiple magazines in them. So my think, my thought is their idea was they were going to breach the perimeter where I was and then go on foot, split up, and then mount the attack. As Because pe- everybody, it was the fatal funnel thing. Everybody was just starting to leave the yeah. facility. So, <clears throat> yeah, they, but, but I didn't, I wasn't thinking these are terrorists. I wasn't thinking these are just two guys trying to kill me. And yeah. for whatever reason, I, it really didn't matter to me at that right. point. Um, and so I just reacted by doing what I was trained to do, yeah. basically. But so, how soon after did you hear from the White House, and and what did that look like? Did- well, one of our assistant chiefs at the time um, actually um, sent in a nomination. It's a not, and and once I was there, I kind of I talked to um, a, a guy that there was a chief of police in Delaware, I believe it was, that was actually the head of this committee that got all these applications, and they would go through all these applications. And they would award up to um, five of these medals a year. Or, wow. uh, yeah. And so, and they and they did the ceremony every two years. So up to there would be ten recipients every two years, right? And uh, and I asked him. I said, "Man, how do you go through all the?" I said, "Policemen do extraordinary things every day all over this country. How in the heck do you figure out five out of those?" Um, and because I'm thinking, how did I end up here? <laughs> you know, and he said, you know, what's interesting. He says, we get, we do get lots and lots of nominations. I mean, hundreds, obviously. And he said, every year there's like five of them or maybe six of them, but five or six of them that just seem to rise right to the top. And he said, it's not as hard as you might think it is. And I thought oh, that was interesting. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, th- this assistant chief made the, made the nomination and, uh, and I didn't know anything. I didn't even know he had. And until months later, I mean, this is not 
I mean, it was it was almost a year to the day from the time the incident happened to the time I went to the White House. So this is a, a, a kind of a lengthy process. And finally, they came back to me one day in my office and said, hey, uh, how do you feel about maybe going to the White House and getting awarded a medal by the president? And I'm all but laughing like, OK, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where's the camera? <laughs> but anyway, uh, here is the medal uh, that you received if you want to. Show that to our viewers, and well, let's see. So, you're the third recipient of the Garland Police Medal of Valor. There's no, the, the the I'm the third recipient of the Garland Police Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor. Okay. Um, there have been other. There is a Medal of Valor that's also awarded as well. But you know, our police department was um, came to being in 1951, I guess it was, mm-hmm. and we've only had three recipients of the Medal of Honor, and that was. Uh, uh, Michael Moore, Mad Dog Moore, was uh, was given the Medal of Honor. Um, unfortunately, he lost his life, uh, stopped trying to stop a bank robbery, and, and was shot and killed. Um, uh, we had uh, one of our, who's now, I, I guess he's a captain, um, that uh, he, he, he was chasing a suspect and on foot, and the guy turned around and shot him in the head which you would think that would be kind of the end of the chase, but no. Um, he continued to pursue him um, um, in spite of his, his wound and was able to catch him and ultimately uh, subdue him. I think he, he was fatally killed, and, and he received this Medal of Honor. And then there's me, and I'm thinking, that's some pretty interesting company to be a part of. Um, kind of, you know, it's it's just surprising. You know, I, it, it was really, especially right at first, it was really hard to navigate all the people that were, you know, just had so many nice things to say. And, and, and it was kind of uncomfortable, to be honest with you. Right. I, I was really not used to that. Policemen don't, that's not what policemen do. Right. You know, they just go do their job. And, you know, an occasional pat on the back goes a long ways for most cops. You yep, know, yep. They, they're, just, they're just glad they can do their job. Um, recognition is not what it's all about. It's nice to get a little now and then, but more importantly, you know, you can get letters from the public and everything. That's all fine and good. But the most important recognition for me has always been from my fellow officers. If they say you did a good job, they know whether you did or not. Sometimes the public will think you did a good job when maybe you didn't even do that great a job. You know what I'm saying? So in the history of Garland Police Department, three Three. Medal of Honor winners, you're one of those. And this is the Public Safety Officer Medal of Valor presented from the president. And you are, in the history of the United States, you're the 140th? 104th. 104. Yeah. 104th recipient right. of the Police Medal of Valor from the and president. And I think this came into inception in, um, at, after 9-11. Okay. I think they started doing that. So. Maybe hold that up and... Maybe go into yeah. a camera, get a shot of that. Let's see here, uh, straight across. There, there we go. go. Well, that's what cool. it looks like. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful medal, and man, what a, what an honor to, to get invited to the White House and be presented a, a you know, a medal by the leader of the free world. Yeah. Um, and I always look at it as it doesn't matter who the president that's is. Right. Um, it, it's presented. You know, on behalf of the leader of the free world, on, on behalf of the uh, of the people of the United States, yep. and 
and it's truly an honor. And I don't, I, you know, it wouldn't, it doesn't matter to me who the president is or was, or it could have been any of them. And, and, uh, it wouldn't, uh, it doesn't make it any better or, or less valuable That's either right, way, sir. whether, whether you agree with somebody's politics or not, it's neither here nor there, That's right. you know, at this point, but, uh, what a, what a great honor and, and, uh, and what a great experience that yeah. was, you know, I imagine officer Gregory Stevens. Medal of Valor presented to Officer Gregory Stevens, Garland Police Department, Texas, for demonstrating extraordinary courage to save lives. Officer Stevens exchanged gunfire at close range. Well, uh, you wanted to kind of just touch on wellness, uh, kind of how it affected you, uh, the incident. I mean, it's a you know traumatic incident to go through. You just fought two two ISIS terrorists, you know, on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, and if you want to kind of briefly talk about you know, wellness and, and how you went through that and how you navigated through it. Well, you know, for me, that, that was just an incident, you know, being in the traffic unit for near for about 33 of my 40 years, I may, you know, I was, a um, an accident reconstructionist made a lot of fatality, you know, accidents. And some of those are pretty gruesome and, and uh, all that. All that, all that stuff takes a toll. This was just another one of those toll-taking kind of events. Um, but it's interesting. Um, I I managed my own wellness pretty well, not because I'm really that smart, but just because I did things that were teaching people to do. I just did it kind of because that seemed like the thing to do for me. It just I didn't have to think about it. It just happened. And uh, here's a great example. I made a, a an accident call one night. I called in the middle of the night, and I was, I was team leader for – I was a negotiator on SWAT for about 22 years and, and team leader for part of that. And I was a fatality investigator for 30-something years. My phone rang in the middle of the night a lot, right? And uh, you were investigator, person's investigator. Your phone rang a lot in the middle of the night, too. You know what I'm talking about. Um but uh, I got this call in the middle of the night, go work this wreck. It's a single car accident up on LBJ Freeway, which is one of the deadliest roads in the state of Texas. And so I get up there, and this guy had been going way fast, ultimately through my investigation. I got him at about 138 miles an hour when he loses control of his BMW and hits a light standard pole in the middle of the highway. This is before they put HOV lanes in the middle. Bounces off of that and goes down the road. And I had a 2,100-foot crime scene of debris, fluid, parts and pieces of everything. And so I get out there. But it's kind of a garden variety one if it's a one-car wreck because the guy, unfortunately, lost his life in this thing. Pretty gruesome crash. He was was an ex-Detroit Lion football player that I had never heard of, you know, but thought that was kind of a big old guy. And uh, anyway, so I'm out there working this wreck. Well, I have to – I have to – go ahead and take it pretty seriously, even though it appears to be one of those garden variety wrecks. So in case the phone rings tomorrow and somebody says, hey, did you guys ever catch that truck that hit that BMW that lost control, you know, in case it turned out to be not just a garden variety crash, right? Right. So I'm out there all night measuring stuff and, you know, um, that's kind of a lengthy process in and of itself. So I, I, I get home and I'm telling my wife about this wreck. And, uh, 
and it's it's daylight. It's just about daylight, and and we're sitting on the edge of the bed, and and I'm kind of telling her, yeah, this is about this guy, and blah blah blah, and and there wasn't much to it, and all of a sudden I become very emotional, and I'm just all of a sudden I'm just sobbing over this guy that I have no idea who this guy is. I'm just literally just can't control my emotions at all. I'm sobbing. I'm upset. My wife's looking at me with complete astonishment. Um, I'm returning the same astonished look at her like, what in the hell is going on with me here? What is wrong? You know, I had no idea what was going on. And in a few minutes, I kind of, you know, regathered myself. And she looked at me and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah. I said, I feel better right now than I have felt in forever. I I, I said, I, I can't even explain the difference. It's like the weight of the world just got lifted off of me. And what that was was that emotional release that as policemen were so bad about harboring all that grief and all that heartache and all that trauma and we never find an avenue to release it. It boiled over. It did. It, my cup just overflowed. And I it wasn't. You were going to say manopause had hit. And you just, <laughs> can we just watch the Family Network? And yeah. Watch a good movie. Yeah. Oh. No, that wasn't it. But but those kinds of th- that's when that was a realization um, moment for me too. That I said, hey, I got to be better at not harboring this. And you know, it's easy to say, ah. I've seen a million of those. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, it does bother you. You just may not want it to bother you. And that was the culture of our agency in the 80s and 90s. It Probably was the culture of law enforcement. Yeah, that, I was going to say more than just our agency. Well, I'd worked at other agencies, and ours was alpha the alpha. Our leadership were, were old school, some former Marines, former military, old pretty, narcs. And pretty crusty. It was a salty department, yeah. and back then you wouldn't have said, "Man, I'm that last call bothered me, or oh. that last call upset me, or I'm struggling." Or you would never, no. you would have been eaten alive. No, and and uh, even in my unit, in the in the traffic unit that I was in, this was an assembly. I of, thought y'all were all sensitive on motor unit. All those years, I thought y'all were very pretty touchy feely. <laughs> Not really, just with our bikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're touching my bike, I'll be feeling you, you know. But anyway, um, no, really, and really, I worked in a, in probably one of the more alpha kind yeah. of units in the department on top of that. These were a bunch of salty old, strong-willed, hard-working, you know, kind of guys. And, uh, and, and so you would never in a million years go, you know, I went home and I cried about that guy last night. Yeah, you don't, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But – the reality is, it's okay to go home and cry about that yep. guy. If if you know you need to, you need to. We need to. We need to maintain our humanity. That's a horrible thing, and yep. uh, and just like what happened at the Cowell Center. You know, those two young men needlessly lost their lives because of some kind of an ideology that I have no con- no idea how they come to that, how they get there. But there was a tragedy at the Curtis Cowell Center. Yeah. On May third, twenty fifteen, it just could have been a whole different kind of tragedy. But these, both these young men had moms and dads and brothers and sisters and friends and people that cared about them. Uh, the loss of a human life is is impactful on so many people um, that it is a tragedy, and we got to remember that no matter who it is, it doesn't matter who it is. Well, and, I, and you had a rock. I mean, I've never met your wife. 
but just by your sacrifice, by working so much and trying to give a better life for your family, it's obvious that, that you had that, that, that bond with her, uh, and, and she was your rock. And I think you having that at home is probably what got you through that. So, you know, for our listeners, uh, or our watchers <laughs> that, uh, you know, don't have that, you, you need to reach out to your brothers and sisters in law enforcement. If you're not married, if you're, if you're a single person, uh, you know, reach out to your brothers and sisters in blue, because uh, at the end of the day, we've, we sometimes it may feel like we're the only ones that you got, you know, well, I, I don't want it lost on a point. Okay. There was 230, 250, however many people pouring out of the fatal funnel, as you referred to that front door, right? Those guys were loaded for bear. They were there to party. I don't want it lost on the people that aren't familiar with the story and people that are listening, but for a guy with a Glock pistol, if those two had gotten past you with 1,400 rounds or however many rounds of ammo in those two rifles, automatic weapons, with 250, 240 civilians unarmed walking out of a building, that was going to be a bloodbath. That was going to be a freaking massacre. Right. But for... Well, that's part of it. Now, we did have a lot of other guys, very competent <laughs> individuals there that you know were, were available to engage these guys. But it would have been a whole lot more difficult in the confusion, and especially if these guys are split up and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I have complete and total confidence. You know, my the SWAT guys; those guys came to rescue me, and they were there in in nothing flat, right? Sure. And uh, I'm very appreciative of those guys. Love those guys, and and uh, that was a team effort. It wasn't just Greg Stevens. It was it was a it was a team effort. Yeah, and. Uh, I'm very appreciative of that. And had they gotten by me, I'm sure they would have been engaged very soon on. But nonetheless. Well, it would have taken somebody coming across them in a gunfight first, hopefully. Um, your exchange of gunfires, what drew what drew the react teams. Right. And um, I, I'm glad their assessment was this is just a security guard and an old dude. I'm glad their <laughs> assessment was that because they picked the wrong time, the wrong guy in the wrong place. It was the generator of some very interesting memes, though. I can tell you that. <laughs> the first one that popped up into my mind was the Clint Eastwood, get off my yard. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. That's awesome. Well, brother, I'm telling you, this is the first time you and I have met today, uh, and just what an honor. What an honor to meet you. I've heard so much about you. I've seen you on TV. I've seen a couple of interviews that you've done. Um, I, and, and, and the day that you received this, ironically, I saw it come across the news and I'll never forget that. Cause I was thinking, man, uh, that's badass, you know, that a Texas cop took care of business that day. So, well, listen, thank you. that, that day was quite a day. And when I got home, there was a newspaper that a bunch of my neighbors and stuff had gathered newspapers and brought them to me because, Above the fold and below the fold was a picture of me receiving this medal from the President of the United States, which is unbelievable, right? I've got some of those newspapers at home. But in addition to that, this is greatness. in the upper left-hand corner of the Dallas Morning News, teasing an article that was in the sports page, was a picture of Rugnet Odor punching out Jose Batista on second base. <laughs> Remember that photo? <laughs> yep. Batista's jaws yep. like So yeah. I have that photo and me getting a medal on the same newspaper. Is that not the best front yeah, page ever? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Only in Texas. <laughs> Only in Texas. Uh, well, this about wraps it up, I think. Uh, we're going to shoot some uh, – no pun intended. Sorry, Greg. But we're going to uh, fire off some uh, rapid questions to you. Ready? 
Okay. And I've got faith. I know that you drove that Malibu uh, or the Caprice, I'm sorry, as your last car, but I've got faith that you're that you're going to give the right ones. Okay. Best cop movie or line from a cop movie, best patrol vehicle, and best drink. Whiskey, you know, adult drink. Best line from it's got to be Clint Eastwood <laughs> with his 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun. Pretty popular. You know, the, I don't know, the 45 did pretty good that day. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 45 worked pretty good. That's a whole nother. We can do a podcast on that whole thing. Um, there's something about the, the bong that the 45 makes when it hits a steel target versus yep, the is. ding that a 9mm does yep, when it hits a target that yep. is worth, I mean, Nine millimeters is good round now. They they've done a whole lot with that, but but uh, you know, old guys like forty fives. That's all there is to it. Yep. Um, best patrol car was my was probably my uh, two thousand seven Harley. Yep. Um, okay. That was uh, slide on that one. I agree. I, I, road King or Electric Glide? It was a Road King. There you go. And uh, I loved that motorcycle. And um, um, but really, as a car, that that Caprice was a. I thought they were great. Yes. Because they had they they had that six liter. They were fast. Yeah. About 94 or so when it had that Corvette motor in it. That was it 90? No, this was, he's talking about the the one 2013. I'm talking about the 2013. Had the six liter. Now, the older ones, like he was talking about the Shamu ones. Yeah. Man, they were ugly. Goodness gracious. They were fast, though, and they handled good. And those kind of square Impalas were really pretty cool, too. They, They were good cars. But my favorite vehicle was my was my Harley, and I rode a Kawasaki for about 20 years, and I've loved my Kawasaki. Um, you could jump curbs with it and do all kinds of stuff that you couldn't do on the Harley. But the Harley was there was just something about the Harley. Yep. Yeah, best drink. Best drink. Well, I'm kind of a beer guy, yep. and uh, my favorite beer is the National Beer of Texas. I'm a Lone Star fellow. I like Lone Star. Yeah. Lone Star's good. Lone yeah. Star and Lone Star Light. Can't That's go first wrong one. With that. First one yet. So years ago, uh, where I live in Forney was not dry. You had to drive to Terrell to get alcohol. And I had a guy that would order me like a case of Lone Star. And this is several years ago. I went in there to pick it up and he goes, I can't get it anymore. I said, what? He said, Lone Star is suddenly a fad in the Northeast. Like in New York. <laughs> it's hip to drink. Like here it's, you know, Corona or whatever. He said it became a fad. He goes, you cannot get Lone Star in Texas because they're shipping it all up there because it's a fad beer and they're making a ton of money. I thought it might be a felony in of itself it's, not to drink. It's hard. It's not as easy to find as you know Miller Lite or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you have to do a little uh, little looking to find it, and uh, and you know it's a throwback kind of thing. When I was growing up here in in uh, um, in Austin. Um, soon as I turned 21, um, that was uh, not the a day before. Not a day before. <laughs> that was the uh, that was kind of the beer of choice. Yeah. You know that everybody drank. Long. That was and uh, it kind of like you said it kind of fell to the wayside for a long time. Seems like. Yeah. Well, you got anything else, Clint? No, I cannot thank you enough. I love you, brother. I, I was honored. To My work. pleasure. Yeah. I was honored to work with long long. Side you guys for all those years, honored, 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 and to still call you a friend. Well, it's my my treat. What a pleasure to meet you, Tyler. You it's great. been uh, we got to do some more of this, and yeah, absolutely. And, you know, spend a little more time together. Well, this wraps it up again. 
hit that subscribe button to our viewers, watchers, listeners, voyeurs. Uh, hit the subscribe button. Let us know what you think of the uh, of the Blue Grit podcast. Also, if you need to get in contact with us, Blue Grit at TNPA is our email. Again, that's Blue Grit at TNPA.org. God bless you guys. Stay safe. And as always, may God bless Texas. We're out.